The church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. But doesn't it feel different to say that this year on Easter Sunday? We're used to experiencing Easter in a full church together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. All the children will be wearing smocked and monogrammed outfits. The ladies will be wearing lovely pastel Easter dresses. And the men wore a necktie, usually reserved for a wedding or a funeral. But this necktie, being a good sport, even has polka dots on it. This is an Easter unlike any other. There have been no community-wide Easter egg hunts, and most of us won't be going to see extended family for a lovely Easter brunch. I'm speaking to you right now through a camera in the middle of an empty sanctuary. You're viewing this most likely in your living room, maybe in your pajamas while you sip coffee. And beyond the walls of your home and the sanctuary, our world is hurting. People are sick. Healthcare workers, the real heroes of 2020, with bleary eyes and aching feet, continue to attend to them offering acts of mercy in the midst of human suffering. And even those who aren't sick have had their livelihoods affected. People are facing financial hardship, some financial ruin. And in the middle of these uncertain and unprecedented circumstances, everyone is wondering, where is God in all of this? And asking that centuries-old biblical question, What is God's will in the midst of this? And is anything that's happening God's will at all? I'm thankful today that no matter what our circumstances are in the moment, the unshakable truth of Easter hope stands firm. And I believe that we can respond together today that through Jesus Christ, Easter is God's will. Our scripture reading today is read by my friend Bella Hatcher from John chapter 20. Hear this reading of God's word. The Gospel of John chapter 20 verses 1 through 16 say, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outrun Peter and, and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying there in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciples, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she went, she bent over to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. 
At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? For who is it you are looking for? Thinking it was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Here in the fourth gospel, the writer tells us about Jesus, the risen Christ's first encounter with a person. It's Mary. She goes to the tomb early that morning while it's still dark, before the sun comes up, sees that the stone has been rolled away and it's empty. She returns to where the disciples are staying, where she tells an unnamed disciple and Simon Peter, who jump up and sprint to the tomb. They too see that it's empty. But not yet believing that Jesus has been raised from the dead, they just return to where they're staying, leaving Mary alone by herself at the tomb, and she's crying. She soon turns around and sees someone there who says, Woman, why are you crying? Mary explains that the body of her Lord is missing and she desires to know where it is. Well, it says that Mary doesn't recognize Jesus. Maybe it's because it's dark. Maybe it's a foggy morning. Maybe it's the own mist and tears in her eyes. But it says that she thinks he is the gardener until Jesus speaks her name, Mary, and she realizes she's encountering her Lord raised from the dead. The gospel writers chose their words very carefully. And in John chapter 20, the writer says that Mary thinks Jesus is the gardener. That got me thinking about another gardener in the Bible, the very first gardener. Way back in the story of creation in chapter 2, the scripture says, The Lord God formed the human from the topsoil of the fertile land and blew life's breath into his nostrils. The human came to life. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and put there the human he had formed. In the fertile land, the Lord grew every beautiful tree with edible fruit. And he also grew the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flows from Eden to water the garden. The Lord God took the human and settled him in the garden of Eden to farm it and to take care of it. According to Genesis, the world's first occupation is gardening. In the middle of the Garden of Eden, God takes Adam and his wife Eve and puts them there as the caretakers. They are to spend their days weeding and pruning and watering. And after an honest day's work, God will descend and spend time walking with them in the cool of the evening. This was life as God intended it, for humanity to have perfect, harmonious relationships with creation and with God. But by the next chapter... The story goes all wrong. Thorns of pride and rebellion creep into Adam and Eve's behaviors, and they take a piece of fruit from the forbidden tree and eat it. That evening, when God descends to walk with them, God sees the apple core on the ground, knows that Adam and Eve have broken God's commands, and calls them out. God explains that there are consequences for their choices, and in fact, the ultimate consequence will be that they have to leave the garden, leave access to the tree of life, and therefore one day they will die. 
We're only at chapter 3 of 1189 chapters in the Bible, and the story has already gone wrong. Surely this is not God's will. God wanted Adam and Eve to be obedient, right? I mean, God wouldn't command them to do one thing while secretly, willfully hoping they would do something else. So what does this story tell us about God's will for humanity? Leslie Weatherhead was a British Methodist pastor of a congregation in London, England during 1943. These are the dark days of World War II, when the German Air Force was for weeks and months at a time dropping bombs all over the city of London, seeking to weaken the nation's resolve. As a result, Weatherhead found that many people in his congregation were questioning what the will of God was in everything that was happening. Some were even questioning whether or not the war could be an expression of God's will. In response, he wrote a series of sermons about the will of God, which later became published into a short book. In it, he describes God's intentional will, which refers to God's original purpose, God's highest goals and ideals for humankind and for all of creation. Now, he's not just referring to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God's intention for creation at the beginning, which then, of course, goes awry. He's suggesting that God has an intentional purpose and will in my life and yours every day in every interaction that we have. He says that God has given us freedom, and every day I can choose to exercise that freedom in obedience to God or to do things my own way. When I exercise them into obedience to God, I'm following God's intentional will. But when I don't, I fall away from God's intentional will. In other words, not everything that happens in my life and yours is God's intentional will. Now, what happens if we do something that's not God's intentional will? Well, go back to the story of Adam and Eve, which is lived out through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then through the children of Israel in the Old Testament. It is a story of one failure after another of Israel's unwillingness, ignorance, or inability to follow God's intentional will. The good news is, at no point in the story does God just abandon creation and Israel or destroy them. That leads us to what Weatherhead called God's circumstantial will, which he defines as God's will within the circumstances that are created when something in creation doesn't follow God's intentional will. What Weatherhead's saying is that even when things in our world don't go the way that they should, according to God's plan, God is still working within them when human beings mess it up to bring about God's purposes. In the midst of a world filled with pain and broken circumstances caused by our sin, God sent Jesus Christ to reconcile us back to God. And God is doing this in my life and your life all the time. In fact, never is that more profoundly stated than this weekend, Easter, when God takes the human-created circumstances, the blackness and despair of a Good Friday, and brings the hope and brightness of Easter morning to share with God's children. I'm thankful that the Apostle Paul connects these dots between God's intentional will and circumstantial will, between Adam and between Jesus, 
in his letter to the church at Rome, chapter 5, which is read now by my friend Trevor Lee. Paul's letter to the faithful in Rome, chapter 5, verses 12 and 17. Just as through one human being sin came into the world, as death came through sin, so death has come to everyone, since everyone has sinned. If death rules because of one person's failure, those who receive multiplied grace and the gift of righteousness will even more certainly rule in life through one person, Jesus Christ. Did you catch what Paul is saying here? That if through Adam, sin and death entered the world, Adam, a gardener, it's a second gardener through whom life and redemption is made possible. Jesus, who Mary says is the gardener. Jesus comes as a second Adam to undo the curse of the first. Now, in the 16th century, there's an unknown artist who painted a picture called the harrowing of hell. And in it, you can see Jesus having descended into the grave between Friday and Sunday, reaches out to take the hand of Adam, the first gardener, to lift him from the bondage of sin. You see, if the first gardener, Adam, distorted God's intentional will, the second gardener, Jesus, fulfilled God's circumstantial will, taking all the brokenness of human sin and evil and giving life in return. Our God can take the horror of a blood-soaked cross on Friday and turn around and allow that cross to bloom into the tree of life from the garden on Easter Sunday. Now, if you're wondering if a person's actions could ever thwart God's will so badly that nothing could be redeemed, Weatherhead had a third expression of God's will to respond to that. He called it God's ultimate will which are God's final purposes, which will be fulfilled in spite of human evil, foolishness, or ignorance. In other words, no matter how badly human behavior gets, no matter how far away from God's intentional will we get, God is able to work within the circumstances to bring about God's eventual final redemption of the world. We see it in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, when John the Revelator, seeing his vision, says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the former heaven and former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Look, God's dwelling is here with humankind. He will dwell with them and they will be His peoples. God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no mourning, crying, or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. This passage in Revelation 21 sets up the final chapter of the Bible in which John's vision continues, and the river of life flows by the tree of life, God's garden, which began in perfection, ends in perfection. You see, friends, in the fulfillment of time, God's ultimate will will be fulfilled. God will bring heaven and earth together. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ 
the second gardener, is Lord. God will reach down from God's throne and wipe every tear from every crying eye. And God will say, see, I am making all things new. So I return to our opening question. What is the will of God today? I do not believe that this worldwide health pandemic with all of its suffering and death reflects God's intentional will. Of course not. But in the midst of all of those difficult circumstances, we can all see the way that God is at work to redeem and bring healing and goodness in spite of those circumstances. So, I encourage you, for Christians, in times of tragedy and suffering, meaning is not to be found, but given. Every time someone who is hungry receives food from a neighbor, every time an elderly couple who is shut in is checked on by a brother or sister in Christ, every time someone who is facing financial hardship has some of their burden lifted because a Christian in our church offers to help them with the need, Every time an act of mercy and compassion and goodness in the midst of broken circumstances takes place, God's will is being fulfilled. So church, I want to call you to action. I usually conclude my sermon with a story or illustration or metaphor. Not today. Please finish this sermon by allowing the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead on the first Easter to raise you to new life, to become an ambassador of completing God's will in all the circumstances in which you find yourself. With God's help, may it be so. Amen. The Church at Rossbridge is located in Birmingham, Alabama and helps people find abundant life in Jesus Christ.